You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. I'm very excited about the show that we've got for you today. Brings together one of my favorite people with her new book about money. You know, for years and years and years, I felt like I was following in Beth Kobliner's footsteps a little bit. She was at Money Magazine. I wanted to go to Money Magazine. (laughs) Eventually, I got to Money Magazine. She wrote a book. Eventually, I wrote a book. And she has been at the forefront of teaching us both how to have financial lives ourselves and now how to raise kids that are going to be smart about money, which is one of those questions that when you're out and about in the world like I am, you are asked all the time. Um, Beth has an amazing bio. In 2010, she was selected by President Barack Obama to be a member of the President's Advisory Council on Financial Capability. She is the author of Get a Financial Life, Personal Finance in Your 20s and 30s. You've heard me recommend that book before. And she's here to talk about her latest book for parents, Make Your Kids a Money Genius, Even If You're Not. Beth, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Jean. I have to say, I've always admired you. You are amazing on TV and all you've done. No, seriously. Right back at you with multiple interests, compound interests. Thank you. So (laughs) what made you decide to take on this book from the parents' perspective. Right. Well, I've been writing about this topic now for 30 years. And I realized that, you know, on the playgrounds or in the classrooms, and now we're talking about our kids' college age and beyond, that they, people, parents are talking about money and they want to figure out how can I make sure my kid understands the value of a dollar. And like you said, I was on uh, President Obama's Council on Financial Capability. And the project I worked on was something called Money As You Grow, which was a project to research and tell parents what their kids need to know from age three to five, six to 10, 11 to 12, you know, different age groups. And what was interesting, we put it up on the Treasury website and it went viral. 1.4 million parents were, and nothing I ever did went viral before. So it was clear that there was such a hunger for this information. And I think those two things, my experiences and then the, the council work made it clear that parents need to know what they need to teach their kids of all ages. Well, I think a lot of parents feel like they've failed themselves and it makes it more difficult to be confident that you're teaching your kids the right things. Right. I think that's absolutely true. I think that people are, as you know, you know, scared of money, embarrassed about money. And the idea of revealing that to your kid, how little you know, or how maybe you messed up, or I think it's sort of, it's terrifying. And I think the best thing I've heard so far is somebody said, a mom blogger told me that she felt like the secret 
thing with my book was that it's supposed to be teaching parents how to teach kids, but it also teaches parents the basics. And I think we're really at that point in society now where we need to make sure we educate our kids and educate ourselves. I love your instructions to parents that they should identify their own financial baggage and then leave it behind. So how do you do both of those things? Right. Well, so I grew up middle class from Queens and my, like I saw my mom only buy things when it was triple coupon day at Wallbounds. And then I saw my dad, you know, really being careful and very good about uh, saving, putting the most in his, you know, uh, 403B plan. They were both educators, teachers. Mine too. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> it's funny. I'm totally the same person. Um, but you have better posture. Sure. Uh, <laughs> tell my mother who made me go to ballet class there when I was go. 13. Yeah. And, I did and, too, but it didn't help. <laughs> oh, I went as a teenager. It was uh, mortifying. So anyway, so I, I think that what my experiences and how I grew up, it's very common to then turn that to your kids and say, well, when I went to school, I worked or, and I think all parents feel that way, Mm -hmm. whether you had a lot of money or had a little money. I think it's how we talk about it with our kids. Um, It's important to realize what your biases are. You know, when I was a kid, we only got a dollar an hour for babysitting. Well, the news is it's $20 an hour now. So we have to sort of readjust our framework. And when we're talking to kids about money, being realistic, but also then, you know, making sure our kids are understanding the basics. You also suggest focusing on values rather than numbers. So what is what do you mean by this? And how do we instill that in our kids? Right. I think you know, there's a feeling of, oh, if I'm not good in math, I'm not good at money, or I'm not, you know, able to explain compound interest exactly. And all that's in the book with, you know, whether it's inflation or compound interest or not getting to credit card debt, all that basic stuff. But I also think sort of what we feel as a family is important. We decide, you know, education's really important. And we know now from research that if a kid is three, Uh, they understand basic money values and starting at that young age is really important. And if we say to a young child, you know what, we have money earmarked for your college education, that kid is more likely to go on to college, whether it doesn't really even matter how much money you have in the account. But we know now uh, with research on this, like 529 plans, just setting one up and having some states now or seeding them and putting money in, that really has an impact on children and changing their behavior. So I think starting talking about it and making clear what our values are um, can really actually end up improving our children's behavior with money. I think it can end up improving our own as well. Yeah. There's so much new research being done in values-based spending mm. and the fact that aligning your own spending for mm. the things that you're adding to your own life more closely with your real values and your beliefs mm. can just make us feel a lot better about our financial situation, no matter how much or how little money we have. Yeah, it's true. And you wrote the book on that. Like, you're not the amount of money you have isn't what makes you happy, but it's how you're spending it. And you're, and, and I think, you know, we see like in my book, I have a chapter on charitable giving and we know that 
parents who let their kids know, and the UN Foundation did this, they let their kids know that they're spending money on a charity. Those kids, they tested them, and they're more likely to give to a charity when they went back to them six years later. But if a parent gives money to an organization or you know, nonprofit they believe in, and they don't talk about it without children, it doesn't have that impact. So just giving is great, but also talking about why you're giving and what you're giving. And that really has an impact on children's behavior. Somebody said to me at one point, you raise givers. You know, givers are not born, they're raised. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. I want to get into a couple of specific things. The The book breaks down age-appropriate knowledge. So, you know, it's a big book, and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff in there. But can you give us a a snippet or two about how old kids have to be in order to absorb certain things? Right. Well, I'd say starting at age three, four, we know children understand, and this is great work out of University of Wisconsin, and I got to teach it to Elmo, which was the highlight of my (laughs) career for sure. But it was this idea that children could understand value, you know, Diamond ring is worth more than a pair of shoes, although it depends upon how much your shoes cost. But, um, you know, or they understand exchange. We give money and we get something back. And they understand, of course, needs and wants. We need milk. We want chocolate milk. And all those conversations could start three, four, five, whether it's, you know, at in, at the point of purchase, and it's hard, it's really hard when a kid really, really wants something and you have to say, nope, we're, we're not here to buy that. We're here to buy diapers and eggs or whatever it is. Those kind of repeating that uh, desire to quell, you know, squash down a little bit that impulse control. And we know from research that if you say no at the checkout line frequently, that will have a positive impact on your child. Or if you give in all the time, your child is going to be more likely to have credit problems down the line. And that's all about, you know, it's Terry Moffitt from Duke University, all about impulse control. So I think that for younger kids, that is super important. And even starting, you know, elementary school, explaining what a credit card is, why it's bad to get into credit card debt, simple explanations for these kind of things, and then putting it into practice. I think using cash, and this is one of those ones where I did it with my kids and it did not make them popular, but throughout high school saying, you know what, I know your friends are going to the mall. I know everyone has a credit card from a parent or a debit card from a parent. And I feel that cash was one of those things that kids see it, the pain of paying. You mm-hmm. hand it over. It's hard to do. And then if you, if I give someone, you know, $100 and it's $104, you have to put something back. And I think the concreteness, you know, now with older kids, there's Venmo and Apple Pay and, and it's, I think kids aren't seeing money anymore. Yeah, it's invisible and it moves too quickly. Right, right. And you get what you want immediately. I mean, I was giving a talk in Chicago last week and a mom said, you know, I my son keeps spending $5.99 all the time on apps or game. It was a game, um, Candy Crush game. And I said, well, are you giving him money through a debit card? She's like, no, no, I'm giving him cash. I said, well, how is he buying the app? And she's like, well... I give him, he, you know, I put it on my card and then he gives me the cash back. I'm like, don't do that if you don't want him to do that. And I think it's hard as parents. I'm not saying it's easy, but because all the kids say other kids are having it. And, but I think sort of keeping it whatever your family values are and talking about, you know, 
we're going to spend cash on this. This is what our what we want to do. And, you know, talking about this is our value and maybe we're not going to buy this thing right now, but we're going to have the opportunity cost, meaning we'll use that money for a family trip or whatever it is. I think at each age, whether it's saving, investing, debt, giving, I think college, certainly, mm-hmm. you know, I think starting those conversations in ninth grade, the end of eighth grade, I think there's so much stress about college, as you know, as I know, and saving for it, paying for it, getting into it, that I kind of really worked a long time on getting that step-by-step of what you need to do when your kid is in ninth grade to learn what the financial aid options are and not put your whole family at risk. Absolutely. And I want to come back to college in just a second. But for now, let me just remind everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives. We all deserve to live the lives that we work hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Beth Kobliner. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or divorced or starting a new career. Again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. You know, it's interesting. This show called Her Money for Women, although we're fine with the men who listen (laughs) and we appreciate the fact that you're here. When it comes to talking to our kids about money, do moms get the brunt of it? Yeah. It's interesting. Research shows that kids, they'll ask their mom more about money questions, or probably most any questions, and they ask their dad. But we're not talking to our daughters enough um, about investing the way we are with sons. And I was actually pretty surprised to see that. 2016 study shows you know, we're talking to our boys more about money and investing. And then we think our boys have a better sense of a value of a dollar. And I think it's really a problem because we're talking about we ha- the wage gap exists. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, if we're not talking to girls about investing, and I talked to some, you know, dads, good dads about this. And one said to me, you know, I... I'm very progressive and I think my girl could do anything my boy can do. But I realize I sort of joke with my daughter about shopping and I talk to my son about stocks. And I think it's just educating and, and being aware of the fact, oh, maybe I'm doing this and I have to not do that anymore. It's an issue. Or maybe it's a, a matter of if you have a family meal, whether it's breakfast or dinner, having those conversations with the whole family. Yeah. Yeah. That's, how, you know, as we know, like dinner time is sort of who knew. It's like the the really important to have those. And I do think that's a really good point because it, it has to be sort of everyday moments when you're out, you know, as our, our kids, you know, in their back of the car and they're chatting, then they'll sort of express things more. And I think those kind of conversations in a store, if you're buying a car. My editor said, ah, I went to buy a car right after I read your book. And he said, I bought my 10-year-old. And I didn't sort of, I would never bring her. But I thought, all right, let me make this an experience. Let me talk about it. And all those things we do with money, because we don't see our parents write checks anymore. No, no, we don't see our parents write checks. We don't see their paychecks get deposited, right? right? It right. all goes in by direct deposit. Right. And then zip, 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 the money moves around and nobody sees it. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. I think it's a problem. I want to get to some 
money topics that you actually think are off the table mm-hmm. for young children. I want to talk about why mm-hmm. because these are hot button issues. So let's talk about salary. Mm-hmm. You you don't believe in telling your kids how much you make. I think that particularly for younger kids, you know, unless you want to hear that number at the next parent teacher conference, you know, you're going to, I think that kids need context and to understand. And I think talking about, well, the average or median income is $65,000 and whether we have work very comfortable and we have that or we have more than that, we have less than that and we're able to buy. We're so grateful that we're able to buy a home and a car or whatever we have and why we want to give charity and whatever the reasons or the total explanation is, is good. I think once you start getting, though, to college age or, you know, high school age, actually, I've been hearing more and more parents ask me, you know, my child's 16 and suddenly he wants to know how much money we have. And the more I've been talking to parents, it seems clear it's because the kids are worried about college. So they want to make sure their parents could, A, afford a good school if they work so hard in high school and get into it, or, you know, B, do they have to sort of start working and saving money? So I think once you get into those a little bit older ages, those conversations, and you can, depending upon your child and their ability to understand that, I think starting to put numbers on it if you're filling out the FAFSA form, the financial aid form, because then you're going to start really having to have that talk anyway. But I think at younger ages, it's just out of context, it doesn't really do what probably you want it to do. Speaking of college, at what point do you start getting very tactical with your kids about Mm -hmm. if you borrow this much, this is how much you're going to have to pay back on a monthly basis, and this is how much you're going to have to earn in order to pay that money back and not live with us. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I like the way you said that very emphatically. No, I agree. And I think that, you know, Mark Kantrowitz, the guru of student loans, um, we probably have the same heroes. We do. We do. We love love Mark Kantrowitz and and, uh, Keith Gumminger on mortgages. I know. <laughs> so we're making their day. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> um, they make ours. You know, they're they're really great. These are but- people. Beth and I are talking <laughs> a little bit of inside baseball here. So we have both been personal finance reporters <laughs> since we were children, and these are people who are just the best sources of information on important topics that we cover again and again and again, like mortgages and financial aid. On the planet, they're the best. So, and so Mark Andrewitz says that, um, that you should, rule of thumb, and I thought this was a pretty good one, of not borrowing more, students should borrow more than what they expect their first year salary to be. So if it's going to be 30,000, don't borrow more than 30,000. You know, I think that, There's so much out there. Parents are terrified. Kids are terrified when it comes to college. And I think that, first of all, starting at the end of eighth grade makes sense Mm -hmm. by saying, you know what, you're going to, and not making it, I think it really helps because I think the college is the elephant in the room and parents avoid it for themselves and for their kids, but saying, you know what, you're going to be going to college soon and in the next four years and your grades start to count in ninth grade. And we are in this together, and we're going to find an affordable school for you. That's a great school. And then starting in ninth grade, as parents looking at, there are some great tools that the Obama administration put together. The FAFSA forecaster is one. You can just get a sense of how much you're going to 
be expected to pay, and it could be off by a few thousand dollars, but just getting a clear sense of the number or a rough sense of the number, and then picking schools. If your kid finds a school that is, there's so many great schools, and if he or she is more qualified or has higher grades than that school requires, there's a good chance they can get some money that way and really being creative about it. You know, when I went to college, my dad found all these loans, like VA, zero interest loans, because he was a veteran from the army. And I think thinking that through earlier is so good for a family and talking about it because it makes it clear that you're in this together and we're going to figure this out together. Well, and those sorts of programs are still out there. I remember when my son graduated from high school, there was, as there often is, an award ceremony before graduation. And one young woman had been the recipient of like 10 different small scholarships that nobody mm. besides her had ever heard of. Right. And I just sat there thinking she and her parents, right. or maybe her parents and her, yeah. did an incredible job. Yeah, it's really true. And there are, you know, so many, I think, options for people. And even just filling out the FAFSA, it is a nightmare, I know, mm -hmm. and it's so hard. But the idea of filling it out, the fact that 2 million people who are entitled to aid don't even ever fill it out, I think is something that, you know, they've tried to make the form a little easier, but it, and it'll take time. But that's when you start talking about it with your kid and look, weighing the options. And I mean, I know someone who has two sets of twins and she called me. She's like, do you think I should hold two of them back, the, the first set of twins, so that they could all go to school for it once? And would that give me a discount? And I was like, oh, I never thought of that. And she didn't. But, you know, thinking about and there's Cal Cheney, another, you know, person we admire. He has a book and the Princeton Review book. There are some good books on financial aid and the best way to think about it and think about your finances going forward. And again, it's not a fun topic, but I do think that it helps so much, you know, and you don't have the situation. I know a lot of grownups who say, you know, I, I got into the college, my dream college, and my parents told me the next day we can't afford it. And that's that's tough. You don't want to get to that point. Yeah, yeah. If you can avoid it, absolutely. The book is "Make Your Kid a Money Genius," even if you're not Beth Kobliner. I could talk to you all day, <laughs> but thank you, thank you for coming in and doing this in person, and um, and congratulations and good luck with it. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Thank you. Sure. And Kelly is with me in the studio. Looking all chipper and springy. Thank you. It's kind of my equestrian look. Yes. Yeah. White shirt, brown breeches. Are those breeches? They're like riding pants. They're J. Crew riding pants. My daughter Julia, when she was riding, um, had an assortment of pants, and some of them were breeches, and some of them were jodhpurs, and one stopped at the knee and one of them went all the way down to the ankle. I've worn this outfit before and people have asked like, oh, do you ride? I've been on a horse once, yes. but I like the look. But you're from Arizona, so you right. could just say yes. Yes, I could. I could play it off. You could. All right. Well, what do we have? Our first question is from Twitter. It's a fun handle. Whiskey and Country tweeted us and asked, if you can retire and collect pension at age 55, how does this affect Social Security when eligible? Thanks in advance. 
So here's the deal, and it's complicated, which is why one of the things I'm going to suggest to you is that before you start taking Social Security, you get yourself to a calculator like MaximizeMySocialSecurity.com, which costs a little bit of money, about $50, I believe, at this point, but can fill you in about when is the right time to start taking Social Security and and this is true whether you are working in concert with a pension or or you're not. So this is something that is just well worth the money because there are many, many different ways and times to start taking Social Security, and some of them put more money in your pocket than others. The short answer to this question is it depends. In some cases, pension payments actually can reduce the amount of Social Security that you receive. In other cases, pension payments may make your Social Security benefits subject to higher taxes than others. It depends on whether we're talking about a public pension from a government job or a private pension from private industry. And I don't want to give you an answer that's going to send you down the wrong road. So chances are pretty good if you are getting your pension and you wait until your Social Security benefit grows to its highest possible point, which is at 70 years old, which is one of the things that having pension income should generally allow you to do. You won't need the money as much. You should be in the clear. But these are all things that you need to figure out before you start the clock on either your pension or your Social Security. Wow. It's complicated. No, you know, this is one of those things. And we talk a lot about getting advice on this show and what things you can do by yourself. This is one of those things that I have always said when I get to the point where I'm even starting to think about taking Social Security or my husband is starting to think about taking Social Security, we are going to pay for one of these calculators because there are so many wrinkles that have to do with your age and the difference in ages between you and your spouse and other incomes as our whis- what is it whiskey tango foxtrot whiskey and <laughs> whiskey and cashmere Whis- what whiskey and country whiskey and country perfect for my outfit is asking it makes me think of cupcakes and cashmere ah, that's it. yes <laughs> the blog that i like but that's what i would recommend okay well thank you whiskey and country for tweeting us And our next is from Twitter as well. I thought it was fitting, given our conversation with Beth. She says, my DD, which I think is her daughter, will be turning one. What's the best college savings plan? I like 529 college savings plans. They're state-sponsored college savings plan. The money goes in generally after tax, although you may get a deduction on your state tax return for making a contribution. The money grows tax-deferred. You don't pay any taxes when you withdraw it and use it for education. And the plans are nicely flexible. Um, Not only can you put more money into them on an annual basis than you can put into a Coverdell education savings account, but if you don't use 
the money in the account for one child, you can just transfer it right over to a family member. I've recommended before, if you're looking for one of these accounts, go to savingforcollege.com, which is a, a website that I like. It's run by a guy named Joe Hurley, and he does nice, very clear to read and clear to understand rankings of the various 529 programs. Our final question is an email we received, and she asked to remain anonymous, which is something you can totally do. Just oh, yeah. Send no me a problem. No- yeah, send me a note that please don't use my name on air. No problem at all. Twitter is a little more difficult right there, but you can always email us at jeanchatsky.com. So she writes, I have started listening to your podcast religiously. Thank you for all the information and guidance you share. I've been searching for a topic to help us tackle our dilemma. My husband lost his job through a series of unfortunate events. Looking for work to no end, I am now the breadwinner. Left with car payments, mortgage, all of the debts, and living paycheck to paycheck, along with helping my elderly mother. I only make 70000 with two children and all the expenses they incur. I don't know where to start. How do we get back on track? I feel myself spiraling into a depression, and I want to stop it dead in its tracks before it takes root. Okay, I, I totally feel every bit of emotion that you put into that email. And I, I'm sorry for what you're going through. But I do think that you can get back on the right track, particularly if you and your husband are able to keep the lines of communication open. That is just so important. While he's looking for a job, two things. It's It becomes his job to minimize the expenses of the household. And you can look at doing interesting things there. You can look at whether or not you need both cars. I mean, it's it's possible that you could do it with one because maybe he could drop you at work or at public transportation or you could pick up a carpool. You look at which extracurricular activities for the kids are really necessary, which are, are not necessary. You look at ways to it's interesting. I had a very, very fascinating discussion yesterday with a guy named Ken Dyke-Twald who runs Age Wave, and he had just conducted a survey about the different ways that older people were tweaking their lives to get ready for retirement and to continue to bring in an income. And, and surprisingly, a lot of them rented out the room over the garage, rented out the extra room in the house. You may want to think about something like that, at least in the short term, to just get creative. As for your husband, I would say, why don't you try to reverse engineer his job search a little bit? And by that, I mean, go ahead and look at where the job openings are in your town and in your community, and then ask yourself, what does he have to do in order to get his skill set in shape to meet those needs? It may mean he has to pick up a class in coding while the kids are at school. It may mean that he needs to get training in some other area. It may mean that he just has to start talking to a different group of people. But it sounds like you've got to hold on to your job, which means a move is not in the cards right now. And so I think looking at what he's able to do and thinking about how those skills can fit into the needs of the place where you live is a good way to go about it. And the other thing to do is while he's looking, he should be gigging to the best of his ability. He should be driving for Uber. He should be on TaskRabbit. He should be just trying to figure out a way to pick up some extra money to help supplement your income and make life a little bit easier. In terms of coping with her depressive thoughts that are coming because of this, is there counseling that she can seek out? I would say absolutely get some help. 
I mean, this is, look, here's what we know, and, and I know much more about this than I used to because of writing Age Proof with Dr. Mike Royzen from the Cleveland Clinic. And what we know is that stress is the biggest ager. It makes us older than we are and than we feel. And the biggest source of stress is financial issues with job loss being at the very, very top of that list. And so if you are feeling depressed, get yourself to a doctor. There is a lot of depression in my family, a lot of great tools and techniques and medications out there that can help you get back to a level playing ground. And so, and there is no shame in depression. You're depressed, you go to the doctor, you get some medicine, you take care of it. Because only if you take care of it can you take care of your kids. So I would say that. Take care of yourself and then you're your best self for everyone else. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for your email. And if you have any more follow-up questions based off of that conversation, you know how to get in touch with us. Well, and you asked us not to use your name, but we do know where the email came from. Mm -hmm. So drop us a note with your address. We'll put a copy of Age Proof in the mail to you. Great. Thanks, Jean. Thank you. And before we wrap it up today, a quick Thrive segment to send you all on your way. I'm sure you know the autofill feature on your internet browser, the one that saves all your personal information, your name, your address, even your debit and credit card info. Well, it's a great tool for saving time, but there are some security concerns you should know about. Here's the deal. Let's say one day you include your credit card information in a form to purchase something on a retail website. And later that day, you sign up for a newsletter or coupons or something else from a totally different website. Autofill populates the form for you, and since there's no box for credit card information, you don't think that the site is getting access to that. But you're wrong. If you use Chrome, it will share all that stored card information in the code, even though you can't see it with your own eyes. Here's how to protect yourself. First, I want you to disable Chrome's autofill, and this is something that you do. You go to Chrome, then click on Preferences, then click on Advanced Sync Settings, then select Choose What to Sync instead of Sync Everything, and then Uncheck Autofill. You got that? All right. As for Safari, select Safari, then Preferences, then autofill. You can disable it there, or you can click edit to see what it has stored. And if you're listening to all of this and your eyes are just glazing over because I've just sent you to five different places all at once, I want you to send me an email, um, gene at genechatsky.com, and just say, Send me the autofill instructions and we will send you our write-up on how to get rid of this because it is something that you should absolutely be doing. Thanks for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Beth Kobliner for a great conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at iTunes. Please leave us a review. Reviews are very important in the podcast world. We also want to know what you think. It helps us. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, our show. 
comes to you through PRX. And join us next week. It will be our birthday, our very first birthday, our one-year anniversary. We've got author Jen Sincero. She's got a new book, You Are a Badass at Making Money. We will break it all down and help you do exactly that. So tune in. We'll talk soon. 